today's episode of the SSPX podcast, we'll continue our apologetic series with the resurrection of Jesus. We know that the New Testament is credible, but what about its most important event? Is it logical that a man died and then rose from the dead by his own power? Is there another way to interpret or explain what we read in the scriptures? Maybe the apostles misunderstood it, or maybe they exaggerated the story, or just made it up. But by the end of the episode, we'll see that the simplest explanation is that it actually just happened. You can find notes to all of these episodes at sspxpodcast.com slash apologetics, as well as all of our previous episodes. There as well, you can find a link to help support this project. This is free to listen to, as well as all the resources we're posting, but if you can help with a one-time or a small monthly recurring donation, you'll be making sure that we can continue this work of producing good Catholic content on a regular basis. Now let's join Father Paul Isaac Franks for episode number 14 of our apologetic series here on the SSPX podcast. Father Franks, good to see you again. How are you? Um, doing very well, thank you, Andrew. Yeah, I just put my mom good. on a plane to Boston. She's just been in town for a little week here. And she's going to see a long-lost cousin in Boston and then wending her way back over the pond to back to England. Fantastic. I'm glad you had a good visit. Yeah, that was well, good. I mean, I assume it was a good visit? Yes, okay. it was. <laughs> good. <laughs> uh, today we're going to be talking about uh, the resurrection. Um this is the kind of the capstone to what we've been talking about here over the last few weeks about the the divinity of our Lord, prophecies about him, Father Palco's episode about miracles, and then last week we were talking about the historicity of the New Testament. Right. And we touched on the resurrection a couple times briefly, but this is really the, I don't want to say the capstone, maybe the deciding point of of everything that points to the divinity of our Lord. Is that a fair way of saying it? Yeah, I'd say the linchpin. Okay. It's the this is the claim that the apostles state everything on. So obviously we have that from scripture. What was the criteria for for choosing a new disciple to replace Jesus and Judas, a new apostle to replace Judas? Um beginning from the baptism of John until the day wherein he was taken up from us, one of these must be made a witness with us of his resurrection. Mm. And even for for Paul, if Christ be not risen again, then our preaching is vain and your faith is also in vain. So that's the, the idea. Who is Jesus Christ? We've already had that kind of presentation, liar, lunatic, or Lord, or we could say legend. But hopefully we've spoken enough about the historicity of the New Testament to dismiss legend. We'll have to talk a little bit about myth-making today. But who is Jesus Christ? Should his claims be entertained? Well, yes, if they are backed up with miracles from heaven and prophecies that no human being could do on their own unless God was helping. So, and which is the, the preeminent miracle, the resurrection itself? the most important miracle that was made the, the the most significant claim of the apostles to to bear divine revelation, that Jesus Christ's message was true, such that if he didn't physically rise from the dead historically and really, the whole thing, can you, you can just throw it out. Mm-hmm. So it's very important that we look at this claim for historical truth. 
and how do you determine whether something is true in history in science how do you do it you you set up tests you set up a lab you make an experiment you see if it's repeatable and so on you have a hypothesis and you find the best hypothesis it's, it's chemical and physical testing whatever history has its own criterion for truth and that's the same way that we determine truth in a court of law, right? Are there witnesses? Are they reliable? Are they consistent? Do they contradict each other? Are they of good character such as to make it likely that they are telling the truth? Is there documentation? Are there artifacts? Do the bullet marks on the door match the story of the way the guy said the gun was being fired? Do the witnesses, do the documents, do the forensic analysis convince you beyond reasonable doubt? Okay. And it's possible to establish historical truth. If it wasn't, then you couldn't mete out justice at all. Right. So, um, so are there, the first question then, are there documents? Yes, the New Testament is a historical document, which we saw that last week. Mm-hmm. So we are not claiming to use the New Testament as the inspired word of God, the revelation of the Holy Ghost, anything like that. We're just claiming to use it as a historical document to establish the truth of historical claim at this stage. Okay. So when look So I guess the first the first place that we would start to look at is before we can see whether or not our Lord rose from the dead, did he die? Right. That's kind of the first question to ask, right? Yes. Yeah. And most scholars agree he was crucified. He died. He was buried. And that the tomb was found empty. So as far as did he die? Um, well, because there is, we'll come back to some of the theories apart from that he rose from the dead, that he was... Um, then the other theories would be the swoon theory, which is precisely he didn't die. He, he passed out, okay. and then he got back up uh, from the dead and started walking about. Then there's the fraud theory, that the disciples stole the body and made up a lie which they didn't believe. Mm -hmm. They were deceivers, in other words, and they, they kind of spread that story around. Then there is the hallucination theory, which is they were deceived. They actually thought he had risen, but they were just um, seeing things that were not real in their kind of grief-stricken state. They saw what they wanted to see. Or lastly, myth theory, which was it was never meant to be taken historically in the first place, and these attempts to read it as a historical truth are kind of um, crass and a mis misunderstandings of the true original spiritual message of the apostles and so on. Um, right. Modernism. <laughs> right. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, he will come back to those. But by, by far the... Uh, the overwhelming consensus of, of scholars is he was crucified, he died, he was buried, and that the tomb was found empty. These are the, the facts we need to uh, account for. Now, I say overwhelming. Uh, there's a, a recent book by Dr. Ehrman, 
how Jesus became God. And he theorizes that the empty tomb and the physical resurrection were not actually parts of the original Christian message at all. That they were later mm. kind of um, recordings of later kind of folk, folk tales or something that had been added as embellishments um, to the original Christian message. And I think probably a, a quick response to that would be just to note again the uh, passage that St. Paul has in 1 Corinthians 15, where he says explicitly, he was buried, he rose the third day according to the scriptures. Now that that was probably written at least by the year 55, certainly no later than the year 55. And if you want, um, I could do a whole thing of the chronology of the, of the books and so on, but I would refer you to the... Uh, Sacred Theologiae Summa, uh, the first volume by Nicolau um, on Christian Revelation, just to uh, f- for one source on the datings of those books. There are other things as well. So definitely, we can say by 55, we have this statement. And it's interesting because St. Paul is presenting it not as his own, um, idea, but as something I pass on to you that which I also received. I deliver to you as a first of importance what I also received. And the use of that particular word, um, paradosis, is kind of the technical implication is by hearing, by, by word of mouth, by hearing what somebody said. So I, I say to you what somebody else said to me in words. The consensus of most scholars is that that is kind of a traditional creed or catechism or statement of Christian doctrine that he would have received. Um, some scholars say from, from the church at Jerusalem, some think he might have received it from the time when he was in Damascus. What indicates that? Well, there are certain kind of rhythmic structures and parallelisms in the text that indicate a kind of formula that would have been for memorization and repetition. And also the use that he says, I, I pass it on, I received it, as if it originated from somebody else that he had been taught. Right. So um, it's thought by some that maybe he received it from Damascus, which would place it within one or two or three years of, of the death of Jesus. That's not certain, but we have the, uh, the testimony of this uh, atheist scholar, Gerd Ludemann, who writes, the elements in the tradition are to be dated to the first two years after the crucifixion of Jesus, not later than three years. The formation of the appearance traditions mentioned in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 to 8, falls into the time between 30 and 33 CE. So, um, a kind of an, an early quote. And I would say, I, just for... Um, transparency. I pulled some of these very good quotes from a website by a guy called Eric Manning. The website's called Is Jesus Alive? And uh, he's not a Catholic. There are some things that I would definitely not agree with him on. For example, um, as an example of a sort of the power of suggestibility and and coordinated hallucinations, he, he lists Marian apparitions as one of the sorts of examples of a historical case of a mass hallucination, and a Catholic would not accept that that analysis, of course. But um, much of great value there. 
And um, I also have referenced the argument from miracles, a cumulative case for the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth by Lydia McGrew, the evidence for the resurrection by Peter Kreeft, and the famous um, Sacre Theologiae Summa by the all the Jesuits, and particularly the first volume by Nicolau. Those are my main sort of things that I've pulled on for this talk because I really haven't got anything original to say. <laughs> but uh, That's okay. It's not like you need to reinvent right. the wheel when it comes to this. So that means that the, the claim is early, and most... Um, Yeah, so basically that means that Dr. Ehrman's comment is is without foundation. This is not a later interpolation. This is something that, that scholars, serious scholars agree was claimed by Christians from the beginning, from not long after the death of Jesus. Mm-hmm. Okay, so let's just look at the facts that we need to account for, and then we'll look at the theories and see which theory makes the best sense of the facts. And I'm following, again, um, a little mnemonic acrostic made, I think, by Tim McGrew, which is, he, he groups the facts into five categories, which are live. So the appearances of Jesus, the low status of women, immediate proclamation of the resurrection in Jerusalem after the death of Christ, voluntary sufferings of the apostles and then the empty tomb alive so the first one is is the appearances of jesus he appeared to the 11 disciples that's the 12 disciples without judas and they're named in acts 113 and the sorts of experiences that they have came not in the middle of a kind of um emotional excitement or expectation where they were expecting anything like seeing a risen Jesus. It was when they were depressed and scared. Why were they depressed and scared? Because they could well be put to death the way he had been put to death because they were known to be his followers, which is exactly why right. it's understandable that Paul at the St. Paul at the the Passion, I don't know the man, denied even knowing Jesus because he was scared of being put to death or persecuted in some way. So they were concerned for their own safety even after they heard the initial accounts from from the women claiming that Christ has risen. We still say they were shut up, the doors where the disciples were shut up for fear of the Jews. And when they encountered this experience of of the risen Christ, they weren't initially always receptive either. So most notably Thomas, famously, unless I put my hand into the place of the nails and put my finger into the place of the nails, put my hand into his side, I will not believe. And Matthew's gospel as well, saw it. All many of the disciples saw it, but some doubted. So it's not that there was this they were hoping to see what they were hoping to see so much, and then they saw it, and they were like, yes, finally we knew. It's like, I'm not sure right. about this. Finally, the, the, these were public episodes, multi-sensory episodes extended across time. 
So this is a quote from uh, Can We Trust the Gospels by Peter J. Williams. The resurrected Jesus is recorded as appearing in Judea and in Galilee, in town and in countryside, indoors and outdoors, in the morning, in the evening, by prior appointment and without prior appointment, close and distant, on a hill and by a lake, to groups of men and to groups of women, to individuals and in groups of about up to 500, sitting, standing, walking, eating, and always talking. And the accounts, the appearances, are related as being physical appearances. See my hands and my feet, that is, I myself, touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. And when they, when he sees them, he takes a piece of food, eats the piece of fish and honeycomb, and later he cooks with them and gives them breakfast. So, a physical claim of resurrection and I didn't realize that he had appeared to that many people after the resurrection. Yeah. Groups of 500? Really? That's, yes. Uh, groups of huh. 500. Yeah. So, yeah, it's only recorded if memory serves in one place. But that doesn't mean it's false. Okay. <laughs> right, right. No, so, sorry to derail you there, but that was, that's fascinating. I, I knew that he had appeared to his mother, to Mary Magdalene, to the apostles, now, well, and maybe to some smaller groups. The, 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 the appearance of, of our Lord to his mother is um, of Catholic tradition. It's not recorded. Why is, it not re oh, okay. why is it not recorded in Scripture? Why do Catholics believe it? Because it stands to reason she had been the most faithful to him she had stood by him at the cross, and when he comes, he comes to console those who were his friends, to give courage and to strength to them. And so it makes perfect sense, and he would have perfectly fulfilled the commandment on your father and your mother. So it makes absolute sense that perfectly fulfilling the law and the commandments, he would have come to honor his mother by appearing to her after the resurrection and Catholic tradition commonly and piously thinks even probably first after the resurrection. Nevertheless, this was not a public appearance. It's not a public witness. She wasn't there to be to bear testimony. So um, it was not recorded in scripture for that reason. It's not a public claim. So yeah, that claim uh, that she, that he appeared to Mary, his mother, um, it not not part of public revelation. Okay, but the claim of a physical resurrection very much part of a public resurrection of public revelation, and the claim of the apostles. So even on the day of, um, or in in the Acts of the Apostles, brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. And so, because he was a prophet, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of Christ, which was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus God raised up again, to which we're all witnesses. So, speaking of that quote, you will not see it, let his body know decay. And it's written by David. It says, but David's body decayed, but Christ's body did not decay. A physical resurrection is claimed. So, on top of that, you have the conversion of St. Paul. So, St. Paul claimed to have 
spoken with Jesus, to have seen him, and after that he abandoned his public stance of opposition and persecution of Christians and embraced Christianity and became a proponent of Christianity, even eventually suffering for it and dying. So it's true that there was a light, that other people saw the light, but they didn't see Jesus bodily. And so there are some kind of elements there that mean it's not the same sort of appearance which is being claimed as the apostles were claiming. The apostles were like, yeah, I, I put my hand in his side and he gave me fish. St. Paul couldn't say that. But he's like, he spoke to me, he is alive. It's the same person who physically rose from the dead that met me on the road to Damascus and called me out, Paul, Paul, why are you persecuting me? So, and that was the, the substance of his teaching later. He was buried, he was rise, raised from the dead on the third day. He appeared to Cephas and to the Twelve, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. So, that's the first point, the appearances, they're documented. Okay. And the thing is, they're documented and the, and the, the documents are early. So, right. that's, for, for us, that's, like, that's, that's it, they're historical. The low status of women next. And, 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 Go on. Sorry, I was just going to say, and, and, and if, like you said, the apostles, the people who were following Jesus after his death, they were very upset. They were scared. They were concerned. And they would have had to do a quick turnaround because these these stories, if you want to call them stories, these accounts of the resurrection came about very early on. So they would have had to do a really quick 180 in what they believed. And do we really believe that that would have happened? I mean, that, that's just one more little kind of marker to say that these accounts are, did not come from the mind of people, of these fishermen who were upset and scared and terrified for their own lives. It came from somewhere else, meaning reality. Right. Right. So the accounts, then the low the appearances, the low status of women is next. So everybody knows the first witnesses to the resurrection were, for the first witnesses of the of the empty tomb, were women. And mm -hmm. um, even the first witness of the resurrection, Mary Magdalene, a woman again. So it's not controversial. Everybody kind of concedes that at that time in that place women were not considered as reliable witnesses to serious matters but a few quotations for this for example josephus from the antiquities let not the testimony of women be admitted on account of the levity and boldness of their sex or again from the talmud rosh hashanah any evidence which a woman gives is not valid to offer it's a sense mm -hmm. so I think as Lydia McGrew points out, this shouldn't be overstated. There are some passages in the Talmud which which are a bit more moderate. For example, this quote, whenever the Torah accepts the testimony of one witness, it follows the majority of persons. So the two women against one man is identical with two men against one man. But there are some who declare that whenever a competent witness came first, even a hundred women are regarded as equal to one witness. But when it's a woman who came first, then two women against one man is like half and half. Okay, 
doesn't matter about the details of how they reckon the whole witness thing. The point is, it's a bit more moderate than saying it's worthless. Right. Okay. But the fact remains, at that time, the testimony of women was not reckoned as the most serious thing. It was not of equal weight to the testimony of a man. So if you were making up a story and you wanted to give it credibility and you wanted to designate uh-huh. witnesses, you would make up a bunch of reliable men and put them at the tomb. Oh, look, all these reliable men saw this thing. That's not what we find in the Gospels. Add to that that when the women re- reported to the apostles that the tomb was empty, they didn't even believe them. These words appeared to them as nonsense, and they would not believe them. So Peter and John did consider it worth going to the tomb to see if something had happened, but they certainly didn't believe it on face value, just because, oh, so some women have said it, and the women are crazy, and who knows what they think. Okay, so this is a quote from N.T. Wright, wrote a big book about the resurrection. As historians were obliged to comment that these stories, if these stories had been made up five years later, let alone 30, 40, or 50 years later, they would never have had Mary Magdalene in this role. To put Mary there is, from the point of view of Christian apologetics, wanting to explain to a skeptical audience that Jesus really did rise from the dead, like shooting themselves in the foot. But to us as historians, this kind of thing is gold dust. The early Christians would never, never have made this up. Right. Not what you make Why up put to that give sort of a detail. Yeah. To give um to give validity to your claim. Okay. Right. Then the third thing is alive, so the appearances, the low status of women, now the immediate proclamation of the resurrection after the death of Christ. Because they stayed in Jerusalem and they first gave the message in Jerusalem even when there was a certain rise of persecution, Christians remained in Jerusalem. So this is, and and the first announcement of the, the claim of the resurrection was 50 days after the death of Christ on the day of Pentecost. So in the place where it happened, where the most people were able to go, having remembered what had happened, consult their memories, it didn't happen like that, or look into the claim, look into the, the miracle, find the counter evidence. Hey, his body's here. What are you talking about? That kind of thing. So the enemies of, of the, the message had all the means, every motive and every opportunity to discredit it. And they were unable in the end. So just producing a, a body would have been enough. But what happened instead, hundreds and, and thousands of people embraced Christianity, founded as it was on that claim. The people who were right there just then who had the most chance to investigate. Then the fourth fact is the voluntary sufferings of the, of the apostles. So the apostles all, well, Catholic tradition claims that all of the apostles were 
martyred, except for St. John, who they tried to martyr, but they couldn't because by a miracle they poured him into a vat of boiling oil and his skin just came out refreshed and he wasn't able to die by the divine insistence. Okay, you want to go, go historically, um, we can just look at what the historians tell us. So, I'm not saying those things are ahistorical, but I'm saying I'm not undertaking the, the task of proving that they are all died as martyrs. We can say that, right. we can start by saying that many of the apostles died as martyrs and all were persecuted. So they were commanded not to preach the name of Jesus. Afterwards, they were arrested and flogged. We have recorded the martyrdom of St. Stephen, at which Paul was present. We learn of the martyrdom of James, the brother of John, in Acts. And then the sufferings of St. Paul are very well documented. Five times I received 40 lashes minus one from the Jews. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I received a stoning. Three times I was shipwrecked. All of these kind of chartings of his, of his sufferings. The Joseph, Josephus records the death of brother so-called, uh, James, so-called the brother of, of the Lord in the Antiquities. And um, the martyrdom of St. James is also recorded by Hedesippus, who was of a second, second century. Then the church fathers will give us some details about the rest of them. This is Clement of Rome, St. Clement. In 95 AD, he writes this, Peter, though through unrighteous envy, endured not one or two, but numerous labors. When he had at length suffered martyrdom, he departed to the place of glory due to him. Owing to envy, Paul also obtained the reward of patience, patient endurance after being seven times thrown into captivity, forced to flee, and stoned. After preaching both in the East and the West, he gained the illustrious reputation due to his faith, having taught the righteousness to the whole world and come to the extreme limit of the West, suffered martyrdom under the prefects. Thus he's removed from the world and went into the holy place, having proved himself a striking example of patience. So Polycarp, um, also in his letter to the Philippians, details the martyrdom of Paul. In the assurance that all these have not run in vain, he mentions Zosimus and Rufus and, and St. Paul, but in faith and righteousness, and that they are now in their due place in the presence of the Lord for whom they also suffered. For they loved not this present world, but for him who died for us and for our sakes was raised again by God from the dead. But the bottom line is, all of the, the the apostles are not just, oh he oh he rose from the dead. Here, let's quick, let's write it down and let's try to spread the message. No, they were they were proclaiming it. They were saying he it this happened. He rose from the dead, and we're willing to suffer and die for this. Right. Again, not the right. so they, not the kind they of didn't back attitude down of someone who's trying to to save their lives. They didn't back right. down to save their lives. And there there are other things as well. James, um, Saint Peter, Saint Paul. This is Tertullian that James is slain as a victim of the altar. That Paul is beheaded has been written in their own blood. And if a heretic wishes his confidence to rest upon a public record, the archives of the empire will speak as with the stones of Jerusalem. We read the lives of the Caesars. At Rome, Nero was the first who stained with blood the rising faith. Then is Peter girt by another when he is made fast to the cross. So we're saying even the secular history bears witness of these things. 
So that was the point. They 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 really believed it. They weren't going to back down even at the threat of their life. And then the last argument or the last fact to explain the empty tomb. Well, the claim of a physical resurrection presupposes the empty tomb because that's what um at least the Pharisees, the the Jewish um a main sect of the Jews at that time believed in the idea of bodily resurrection. So, uh, for example, basing themselves on texts like this from, from the prophet Daniel, multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. Your, the dead will live, their bodies will rise, says Isaiah 26, 19. So, this was the idea of a physical resurrection. And once they say he is risen, he's not here. Um, they're claiming that the, the tomb is empty. It's also what is attested in the Gospels. It's also implicit in, in the story that they try to say the enemies come to the, the priests and the elders assemble. They agree on a plan say this, his disciples came during the night and stole him while he was sleeping. And mm -hmm. Justin Martyr, who's writing about 150 AD, says this story is still going on his day. So this is the quote, his disciples stole him by night from the tomb, where he is laid when unfastened from the cross, and now deceive men by asserting that he's risen from the dead and ascended to heaven. That's his dialogue with Trifo. And Tertullian collaborates that this idea is still going on as well, corroborates. Um, so this is he whom his disciples secretly stole away that it might be said he'd risen again or the garden the gardener had abstracted him taken him away that his lettuces might come to no harm from the crowds of visitants okay I think Chelsus makes a similar claim that Origen deals with in his Contra Chelsum as well mm -hmm. so the empty tomb the tomb is, is claimed to be empty now, there's been one theory that's been kind of dredged up here is the idea that Joseph of Arimathea gave the Lord a temporary burial and then after the Sabbath was over, gave him another burial in a new tomb that was the tomb for criminals. That doesn't make a lot of sense. So why would he offer him his tomb at all only to dredge him up and rebury him to remove it as fast as possible after the Sabbath? And anyway, it doesn't really explain the rest of the facts, like the claims that people saw Jesus, that the uh, women disciples, the same, the claim of, of Thomas to have put his hand into his side and all of those sorts of appearances. So mm -hmm. the fact is, if the tomb wasn't empty, there's no way to get Christianity off the ground, right? Because all they would need to do is go and look at the tomb, be like, Wait, let's check the facts. Our fact checkers say the body's still there. So your story is nonsense. Right. So Christianity did get off the ground because the tomb was empty. And most everybody right. admits this. I mean, virtually everybody. Right. So we're going to have we're going to have people who are going to try to make the claim, yes, the tomb was empty, but he didn't rise from the dead because of some other reason. Either the apostles made it up or something like that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
we'll see those theories now. So the main theories are going to be the swoon theory, which is Jesus didn't die, he just passed out. The fraud theory, okay. which is he didn't rise from the dead, he did die, he didn't rise from the dead, but the apostles deceived, said that he had risen from the dead when he hadn't. The apostles were deceivers. Then there's the hallucination theory, the apostles were deceived. They thought he had risen when he hadn't because they saw things in their mind. And then there's the myth theory, which is Jesus died, Jesus didn't rise, and um, whoever wrote the Gospels wasn't intending to write history anyway. It was kind of myth, myths to embody profound religious truths that were not really historical and were never meant to be taken historically, and now are erroneously taken historically. Those are the those theories. So let's just start. Which theory fits the facts best? The swoon theory. Because that's the thing. Will, will you find a theory that fits the... And of course, the fifth theory is the Christian theory. He rose from the dead. He's alive. And therefore, he's proven his claims. And revelation from God has been given to human beings. In Jesus Christ. Okay. Now, this is where we would part ways from... Um, you know, the uh, the other resurrection apologists who are not Catholics and say, well, on the basis of his claims, what sort of church do we have? And we'll say he went on to found a church which is a visible institution with a hierarchical structure in which you are to receive sacraments and you receive um, doctrine that's proposed to you through a magisterium and the rest of it. But that's for later. So, okay. the swoon theory, he didn't really die, it just looked like a death. Okay, what are we going to say? There is maybe one account of somebody surviving crucifixion once. But given the historical narration of a crucifixion, and, and that was like being alive for, for 12 to 16 hours afterwards and then dying, right? It was a pretty um, okay. painful and galling procedure. So... Generally speaking, the Roman procedures were very careful to eliminate that possibility. And in here, the Roman law laid the death penalty on any soldier who let a capital prisoner escape in any way, including by not executing properly a crucifixion. Moreover, the details narrated in the Gospels, which are historical, guaranteed death, right? So not only the crucifixion, but then the thrust of a lance wounding um, the side, sort of the size of a man's fist and probably going up into the heart. It's inconceivable that the executioners and the Pharisees and the priests wouldn't have made sure, moreover, that he was dead because it was precisely their point to get him dead. They wanted him dead because they thought that he was spreading a heretical doctrine. Right, that he, in his own divinity. So they, they wanted him dead. So they would have made sure. And the centurion in, the, in charge of the execution specifically testifies of his death before Pilate. Look, we didn't have to break his, body, his bones because he was dead. I mean, he, this is the professional executioner. And he's saying, yeah, he was dead. I know people can make mistakes, but... Um, that was his job. You know, he dealt with dead people a lot. So 
there you are. The, the Roman soldiers didn't break the legs of Jesus, as they did to the other criminals, means that the soldiers were sure that he was dead. Because breaking the legs would have hastened the, depth, the death of the corpse so that it could be taken down on the Sabbath. And remember, these again, these are the professionals. They know how to do their job. Then, John, St. John, an eyewitness, testified that he saw blood and water come from the pierced heart. This shows that our Lord's lungs had collapsed. He died of asphyxiation. You have a long wound from Dr. A long quote from Dr. Barbet about this. He's got a, a book called A Doctor at Calvary. The Passion of Our Lord Jesus Christ is described by a surgeon. And he says, I say the wound in the heart and not in the wound in the side, because this is the attestation by tradition, and it's been confirmed for me by an experiment. The blow of the lance which was given to the side reached the oracle of the heart, perforating the pericardium. May I be forgiven if I seem to lay down the law, but I fail to see that St. John declares that there was a miracle. He certainly seems to be astonished, but this is not the issue of water alongside is not the issue of water alongside of blood the cause of this. Does he not mean they issued blood and also water? Perhaps he knew that blood can issue from a corpse, but the water would seem extraordinary to him, as at first it would even to a doctor in our day. The blood then comes quite naturally from the heart, and it could only come in such a there in such a quantity. But whence comes the water? In my first autopsies, I noticed that the pericardium always contained a quantum of serum, hydropericardium, sufficient to see to it to see it flowing on the incision of the parietal layer. In some cases, it was most abundant. I therefore took my syringe once again and pushed the syringe very slowly, drawing into the syringe the whole time. Then, as the needle proceeded on its way, I drew out some blood from the right oracle. And I took my knife and inserting it with the same precautions, I saw the serum flowing, and then as I pressed on the blood. Finally, if one inserts a knife vigorously, a large blood flow is seen to issue from the wound, but on its edges one can also see that a lesser amount of pericardial fluid is also flowing. The water was then pericardial fluid, and one can imagine that after an exceptionally painful death agony, as was that of the Saviour, this pericardium would have been particularly abundant, so much so that John, who was an eyewitness, was able to see both blood and water flowing. He would have imagined that the serum was water, for it has an appearance. As there was no other water than the serous fluid, it could not have been pure water. We ourselves use the word hydropericardium, which means the water, water contained in the pericardium. Yes, St. John was clearly, certainly clear-sighted. What he saw was the blood from the oracle and the water from the pericardium. I also have seen them at Verimus Testimonium Maim. And my testimony is true. Wow. That's Dr. Barbet writing about the, what he thinks the blood and water is. Okay. So let's just allow for the sake of argument that our Lord was only gravely wounded. How are we meant to think that he, in his gravely wounded, not having eaten, not having drunk, whipped all over, crowned with thorns, taken for dead, wrapped up in a shroud, that he was unable to unwrap himself from these tightly wound, oil-soaked linens, and roll back a stone on his own, having basically more or less passed out like he was so 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 much so that everybody thought he was dead. And then he has to right. walk around on feet that have recently had nails through them as if he's not in any pain. 
in a way that even the disciples after the resurrection are just like, oh, wow, he's alive. He was dead and he was alive and he's the glorious savior and he's my Lord and my God. When actually he would have been like an obvious kind of pitiful half dead man walking around. How could a swooning half dead man move the great stone at the door? Who moved the stone if not an angel? Because neither the Jews would move it nor the Romans would move it. It's in both of their interests to keep the tomb sealed. The Jews had put, the, put it there to seal it in the first place, and the Roman guards were there to guard the body so they didn't escape. It was their job to make sure it didn't escape. So, there's a nice little quote about this from um, Peter Kreeft. Let us just suppose that Jesus did somehow survive the flogging, the crucifixion, and the thrust of the sphere, the spear, and he was taken down and he was buried. Now we have to believe that he woke up in a freezing tomb on a chilly spring morning, having suffered a huge blood loss, horrific wounds, a spear in the side, and terrible shock and trauma. Despite all of this, he stops to unwrap his own tightly wound shroud and headcloth, takes care to fold them neatly at the foot of the bed, then, from the inside, he rolls back a stone on the outside of the tomb that weighs a couple of tons. He then stumbles out, totally naked, and limps up to the disciples on his bloody feet, with his back looking like a butcher's shop. His head is covered with punctured wounds and contusions. His side has a gaping wound. He shows the disciples his hands and gasps out a greeting. What would you have done? You would have shrieked in horror and realized that your friend had somehow survived a most terrible ordeal. Then he would take him home, call the doctor, and put him to bed. Instead, we're supposed to believe that the disciples said, He is risen, alleluia, let's start a new religion. It's not just Christians <laughs> who have this attitude, though. Even the, the rationalist Strauss, who was uh, one of the modernists, mm. biblical critic, biblical scholar, I say loosely, has this quote. It's impossible that a being who had st stolen half dead out of the sepulchre, who crept about weak and ill, wanting medical treatment, who required bandaging, strengthening, and indulgence, who still at last yielded to his sufferings, could have given to the disciples the impression that he was a conqueror over death and the grave, the prince of life, an impression which lay at the bottom of their future ministry. Such a re resuscitation could only have weakened the impression he had made upon them in life and in death, and at most could only have given it an elegiac voice but could by no possibility have changed their sorrow into enthusiasm, have elevated their reverence into worship. So, this is the reason why the swoon theory on its own does not work. Because anybody can right. tell the difference between a glorious victor over death who, make, who is divine and a half-dead guy crawling around who needs a doctor, which means that the swoon theory is going to have to turn into either the hallucination theory or the fraud theory for it to work. So either they knew he hadn't died and they were deceivers who claimed he had died, which is the fraud theory, or they saw something and then the hallucinations transfigured it and they were deceived. And okay. they were deceived in such a way that they thought he had died when he hadn't. Do you see the difference? 
So the yep. next one is the third. The next one to look at is the fraud theory, which is when the disciples, when the gods were sleeping, disciples came, stole the body, then lied about stealing the body, and told everybody had risen from the dead when he was still dead, and they still had the body somewhere dead, and they knew they were lying. It's the fraud theory. They were deceivers. So. First, let's look at the, the attitude of the apostles. They were completely demoralized. They were the, somewhere with the doors locked in the cenacle, with the doors locked for fear of the Jews. And then afterwards, they come up with this great confidence and boldness, which they even bear to their graves under threat and persecution, and they never back down. Okay, so that certainly attests to their sincerity, but moreover, if they were just lying, what is the cause of that trans transformation? Where did this kind of courage and boldness and bravery come from? Because the Pharisees and the priests were confident that they had a means to stop this happening, because they stationed a guard there, and it's the guard's job to stop the body from being stolen. And if the body was around, it would be easy enough to find it, right? All you need to do is bribe or torture or threaten the right person. The money which had bribed Judas was still there in the coffer. The power of the Romans the power and the, the power of the Jewish God was still there. So I don't, how, how can they have allowed the body to be stolen, how could they have, the disciples have, as being unarmed peasants, not have overpowered the Rome, have overpowered Roman soldiers and or rolled away a great stone while they slept? Now, how can you roll away a, a massive great big boulder and have people sleep through it when it's their job to guard it? But probably for me, the most important thing is, what do they have to gain? Right. What's the motive here? So what was in it for them? Because right, right, right now, if you want to start a religion, you can become a millionaire. <laughs> I mean, in America. But back then, what did they have to gain? Because all they got out of it was loss of their worldly goods, persecution, imprisonment, torture, being driven from town to town, homelessness, sometimes slow torture, and eventually, in, in at least some, and we say all cases, apart from St. John, martyrdom. So, this is the evidence for the resurrection of Peter Kreef, the quote, they were hated, scorned, persecuted, excommunicated, imprisoned, tortured, exiled, crucified, boiled alive, roasted, beheaded, disemboweled, and fed to lions. Did they welcome that all for a hoax? Moreover, they would have suffered remorse of conscience for lying about the divine status of a mere man, which is against the principal tenet of the Jewish religion, which they had all been devout followers of. Yep. So they're going to be acting against their conscience in bad faith, swayed neither by the promise of money or bribery, nor deterred by death. It seems to be beyond the realm of possibility that so many people would die for something that they knew for a fact to be true sorry that they knew for a fact to be a lie that they'd fabricated when they had nothing to gain from it
And there's a nice little objection here by uh, introduced and dealt with by Lydia McGrew in her article. She says, it's, it is sometimes urged that kamikaze pilots, suicide bombers, and so on, are willing to give their lives for what they believed was true. The objection may be put more broadly. Virtually every religion has its zealous adherents who have been willing to die for what they believe. Why then should the willingness of the apostles to die as martyrs be of special epistemic interest? I mean, why does it give us new information or prove anything? The answer is that this description blurs the distinction between the willingness to die for an ideology and the willingness to die in attestation of an empirical fact. And cutting to the chase, she says, speaking of those who die for the cause, you know, the educational resources of an entire nation applied over the course of a decade or more to, the mind, to minds at their most impressionable stage may be sufficient to induce in the young the general belief that their country or their religion is worth dying for. But what would induce grown men to break with the religious community in which they'd been raised and to confess with their blood that they had seen with their own eyes and handled with their own hands their dead rabbi raised again to life? So in other words, yeah, you can die for the cause, but why would you die for the lie when you've got mm -hmm. nothing to gain and everything to lose, and it's even against your religion? And, and at some point, with all those tortures and all that hatred against them, one of them would have broken. I mean, it's human. I mean, we have the accounts of the tortures. One of them would have broken. If this was all for a myth and... To carry that to the next logical step, if one of them would have broken and broken down and said, yes, this was all a lie, we made it up, the Jews would have talked about it. Yeah. We would have some record somewhere, Josephus, or someone would have said, yeah, and see, this apostle who was a follower, he, he made it all up. We have none of that. Right. And honestly, it's a pretty tall tale, the way that it's told. Yeah. Some, some authors would say this isn't even the sort of story that would naturally spring from the first century Jewish imagination of, of a simple fisherman. They weren't literary giants of imagination. These were, they were not Tolkien's. This is Peter Kreeft again. If they made up the story, they were the most creative, clever, intelligent fantasists in history, far surpassing Shakespeare or Dante or Tolkien. Fishermen's fish stories are never that elaborate, that convincing, that life-changing, that enduring. That's true. And anyway, why would you add the detail about women being the first witnesses? So that's not a If you're making up a lie, why would you add that detail into the lie? Moreover, afterwards, many of the priests converted, and St. Paul also which means that the enemies of Christ were convinced. And this comes back on the, the immediate proclamation and proclaiming it right in Jerusalem. This is a quote from William Lane Craig. The Gospels were written in such a temporal and geographical proximity to the events they record that it would have been almost impossible to fabricate events. The fact that the disciples were able to proclaim the resurrection in Jerusalem in the face of their enemies a few weeks after the crucifixion shows that what they proclaimed was true for they could never have proclaimed the resurrection and, and been believed under such circumstances had it not occurred. Uh, again, the means of verification were there. The lie would have been discovered. Mm -hmm. So 
if they were not deceivers, then the third option is they were deceived, which is the hallucination theory. In other words, okay. they were so distraught that they just saw what they wanted to see. They so much wanted to believe that Jesus was going to come back from the dead and save them and everything that they made themselves see it by sheer force of, of desire and grief and whatever. That's the idea. Okay. Well, first of all, there are too many witnesses for that. All of these people independently hallucinating. Mary Magdalene, and, um, Dot Thomas, the disciples minus Thomas, all the disciples together, the two disciples at Emmaus, um, the fishermen on the shore, James, the brother of the Lord, 500 people at once. There's too many witnesses for there just to be like random hallucinations going on. And um, speaking of the 500, St. Paul says most, when he's writing, most of those 500 people would still have been alive, which means that you can go and check, you know. He couldn't have made that claim um, if it wasn't verifiable. Moreover, the, the, they saw him together at the same time and in the same place. So, five hundred different Elvis sightings might be dismissed, but if five hundred simple fishermen in Maine saw, touched, and talked with him at once in the same town, it would be a different matter. That's going to be, I think, <laughs> Peter Kreeft's quote. So, um, that's excellent, I, and it's true. I mean, it. One person seeing one thing, you can dismiss that. But 500 people all corroborating, that, that's beyond the burden of proof. Right. So, generally, hallucinations only last a few seconds, a few minutes. They rarely last for hours at the time. Hallucinations, again, generally in normal circumstances, only happen to, um, only happen once, unless there's some... Um, psychological cause that would um, explain that. So um, this hallucination re returns many times. Hallucinations generally also come usually from information that we already have. I'm not an expert in hallucinations, but um, it's, it's the product of the imagination in, in Thomistic terms. So just as when you dream, the imagination is working. Mm -hmm. um, in hallucination, the imagination is producing, and the with the inability to judge the real from the unreal. So, um, uh, and which means it's drawing on stuff that you already know. Right. This is probably too unlike what we already know. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a weird thing for everybody to generate from his own consciousness. Because it's not like the idea had been implanted. The disciples didn't expect it. And even the accounts say when it was related to them, they didn't even at first believe it. So it's not like, mm -hmm. yes, we knew he was going to come back. It's like, no, I don't know. The women are crazy. And then St. Thomas is like, right. you're all crazy, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, right. 
Okay. Kind of a bit more importantly, hallucinations don't eat. Hallucinations don't eat fish and hallucinations don't cook for you. They don't make breakfast yeah, for you. Yeah, that's fair. You can't touch a hallucination. You know. So, but here's the thing. Most importantly, it doesn't work on its own either because the hallucination, if the corpse was still in the tomb, then all it takes is somebody to be like, hey, I feel like I saw and spoke to the Lord. Am I crazy? Like, should we just go and check this out and see if the corpse is still there? Mm -hmm. So it would be simple. They just have to go and check it out. And if they had hallucinated and then spread a hallucinating story, if somebody had stolen the body, say, I don't know, the Jews had stolen the body or something, then all they would need to do is produce the body. In which case, um, the only option is really that the disciples had stolen the, the body so that they wouldn't produce it, which means that the hallucination theory ends up leading back to the fraud theory. Right. So, and and just, just for fun, let's, let's play this out real quick. I mean, if, if they had stolen the body, and again, we're back to kind of the fraud theory, like you just said, but the, the disciples steal the body. They don't have home base in Jerusalem. They're, they don't live there, I don't think, right? So where are they going to hide a body? Probably in a mass grave with all the other criminals with the, with the, where the Romans would have dumped the bodies. Right. Don't you think the Jews would have looked? I mean, we don't have any information about what the Jews would have done, but let's put our CSI hats on and let's pretend like we are Jewish crime scene investigators. They would have looked there first. It's not there. So the fact that there is no body means the fraud theory doesn't work, the hallucination theory doesn't work. Yeah, I must. I should add, for the sake of precision, when we say the Jews, we're talking about particularly the, the Pharisaical party, which was opposed to Jesus in his life. Right. And we're using right. that term because that's the term that Scripture uses. So, Fair. Um, just because I know this can be a sensitive <laughs> No, yeah, absolutely. But yeah, absolutely. I, his, I mean, I think really... Or the other way, you go the other way, and it's like the disciples stole the body. They were so grief-stricken that they forgot they stole the body. Then they hallucinated, and they didn't remember that they stole the body because they, I don't know, all blocked it out because it was traumatic or something. <laughs> I don't know. Right. I mean, uh, it doesn't make that much sense, and it doesn't explain a whole bunch of other things. Like, it doesn't explain... The empty tomb, really. It doesn't explain the inability to produce the corpse. It doesn't explain how the stone got rolled away. It just mm-hmm. doesn't explain all the facts. So then, the last theory is the myth theory. The myth theory okay. is the disciples were not deceivers and they weren't deceived. They were trying to save a religious truth in a way that wasn't literally true and wasn't literally false, but was meant to be taken as symbolically and spiritually true and was never meant to be taken as literally true. So in other words, when they said he was risen, they didn't mean a physical body got up out of the grave that had been dead and started to live again. They meant um, he's still with us because his teaching lives on in our hearts or something like that. 
Okay. Okay. How do you get around this? Well, first of all, the Gospels claim to be historical. This is a great quote from Luke 1, 1 to 4. For as much as many have taken in hand to set in order, set forth in order a narration of the things that have been accomplished amongst us, according as they've been delivered them to us, who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word, it seemed good to me also, having diligently attained to all the things from the beginning, to write to thee in order, most excellent Theophilus, that thou mayest know the verity of those things, of those words in which thou hast been instructed. There was in the days of Herod, da-da-da. Mm-hmm. So, in other words, um, so that you can know Christianity is true, I'm going to give you the historical account that I've got from eyewitnesses. It explicitly excludes the mythical interpretation. Have you ever read Helena by Evelyn Waugh? I have not. He considered it his greatest work. And um, okay. it's about the mother of Constantine, St. Helen. And it talks about her conversion to Christianity. And she's kind of, she's frustrated as a, a young woman because she's being instructed in all these kind of pagan things. The, 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 the mysteries of Mithras and her husband's into the mysteries of Mithras. And she, he tells her the whole story of Mithras. And she's like, when did this happen and where? And he's like, oh, you're just being blasphemous now. And then she, and somebody else comes and expounds this kind of Gnostic doctrine to her, some kind of Greek teacher. And she's like, when did this happen and, and where? And he's like, this is not bounded within time and space. These are like profound extra-temporal, extra-spatial realities. And he, she's like, oh, okay. <laughs> and then she meets uh, Lactantius, who's a family friend, Christian. When does this happen and where? He's like, in Judea, in, you know, in Jerusalem, at this time, on this day, when this guy was governor. This guy, uh, she's like, okay, now, at least you're giving me a straight answer now. That's how the Gospels present. Right. That's how St. Luke presents it. This happened on this time at this day in this place. It's not how you present a myth. And then, moreover, later in the, in the epistle of, second epistle of Peter, um, he explicitly excludes that mythic interpretation. We have not, by following artificial fables, made known to you the power and the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ but we were eyewitnesses to his, of his greatness, not by following artificial fables, stories made up by men. It says explicitly it's not a myth. So if it says that and it is a myth, then it's not a myth, it's a lie, <laughs> right? And we're back to fraud theory. Um, moreover, there's just not time for a myth to develop because we've seen the chronology and the dating of the, of the Gospels and of Acts and the letters. Okay, I admit we haven't seen them in as much detail as they could be seen. I mean, that could be a 50-part video on its own, just the chronology and dating sure. of the New Testament. There are resources available. Um, but they're early. And myths, don't, myths generally can't take place when eyewitnesses are alive to wait till the eyewitnesses are gone so that the eyewitness can't discredit the mythic versions. But no one disputes that, for example, St. Paul's letters were written within the lifetime of eyewitnesses to Christ. So if you want a mythic interpretation, you're going to have to push the dates of composition back much later, which is what the modernists want. 
right? You see, all the modernists are pushing for later dates of composition. So, um, but in, in opposition to that, we have all the attestation that they're earlier, including their citation and other works particularly, right? Yeah. Julius Muller writes against the demythologizers of the 19th century. This whole de demythologizing is you take the myth and you try and strip away the mythic elements to get back to the quote-unquote historical Jesus. Right there. And then you've got this quest for the historical Jesus, which brings us back to what we spoke about for modernism in the Crisis in the Church series. Um, right. And he challenges his 19th century contemporaries to produce a single example anywhere in history of a great myth or legend about a historical figure arising and being generally believed within 30 years after that figure's death. Nobody ever answered him. Because it takes more time than that for a myth to develop. So anyway, um, there were people very close to him who converted and were convinced by the claim. They weren't converted by a myth. And they didn't die for a myth. They were claiming a real physical bodily resurrection. So, and that's, um, Justin Martyr writes uh, in the, a text called On the Resurrection, which is written as the defense of bodily resurrection. Hundred years later, um, the father, well, Origen, not the father, but Origen writes another defense against Chelsus and he's arguing in favor of a real physical bodily resurrection as well. So if that hadn't been proclaimed, how, why were they writing about that? So the myth theory doesn't work. There's much more that could be said about it, and we'd probably need a, f a fuller examination of all the dates of composition of all the, each gospel, and the epistles and the Acts of the Apostles, which is possible and can be done, but we haven't made room for it in this series. But the, the resources are available. So the only theory that fits the facts properly is that Jesus rose from the dead. And if he rose from the dead, he did, it shows that the hand of God is with him. In other words, it takes divine power to raise somebody from the dead. If the hand of God is with him, if the divine power raised him from the dead, God cannot endorse false doctrine. God cannot do a miracle in such a way that if would lead good people looking for the truth to be misled in religious matters. So, if God rose them from the dead, we say he raised himself from the, the dead by his own divine power. But if he was raised from the dead by the power of God, then everything he claims has divine attestation. God is witnessing to the truth of the claims of Jesus Christ, amongst which he is a prophet, a spokesman of God, the Messiah, and the very Son of God himself. And then from that, Catholics will go on, and he gave us the sacraments, and he instituted the Catholic Church with one head, the Pope, and so on. The rest of it comes from there. 
But this is the fundamental, this is the linchpin of, of whether or not divine revelation happened in Christ. Yeah. And no other theory makes sense. So one piece of evidence which we can say is maybe a confirmation or a sign of the truth of the resurrection is the Shroud of Turin. The Shroud of Turin is a piece of cloth that has the front and the back image of a man who's been crucified, scourged, crowned with thorns, and had his side pierced. Nobody knows how it got onto the cloth. It's not painted because there are no brush strokes and they didn't find any chemical pigments. It's not burned on. It's not a contact image. And it's a very, very small portion of the, uh, the cloth that's been oxidized that, that makes the image there about a sort of a 16th of a human hair. There are blood stains that have been found on the shroud. The blood is type AB, which is the same type that was found in the Eucharistic miracles, particularly the miracle of Lanciano. And fiber analysis of the blood stains showed that between about 30 and 36 hours, the body was no longer in contact with the linen, which would check with the, mm. with the story of, um, with the, with the, with the resurrection timeline. Um, there are some weird things, like under UV light, there's a sort of, they call them blood halos around the, the scourge wounds um, that are invisible wow. to the naked eye. Nobody has been able to reproduce it, even given the technology we have today, far less, because it's been suggested, oh, it's a medieval forgery, it was made in the in the you know the 1200s or 1300s it was painted it was this it was that um nobody's been able to reproduce it even with the the technology we have today let alone with the technology they had back then so right it's posited by scientists that in order to that the image could have been imprinted on the cloth by a, a kind of massive big burst of light a massive big burst of light. And they say the amount of energy needed to create a, a caramel-colored similar image on linen would be 34,000 billion watts. A huge big burst of light. Now, those who accept the, the validity, authenticity of the shroud and, and also accept the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ say, posit, that was the energy that was released, light and heat, at the moment of the resurrection itself, that there was, a, as it were, right. a kind of flash, a massive surge of energy in the moment of the resurrection, which imprinted the image on the cloth. That's how mm. believers read the shroud. Um, it's a, a witness that very closely mirrors the details of the Gospels. There are all sorts of cool things in there that they have seen some bone structure information as if it were an x-ray through the cloud. You can see the, the teeth, the bones in the hand, the, the ribs. The image wow. of the thumbs can be seen through the hands. There are some, um, and, and moreover, it's a photographic negative. The whole right. image is yeah. a photographic negative. Not something that someone could have painted without some very serious knowledge of, n not to mention 
producing it, needing the watts, needing all that kind of stuff. I there, there's no don't way someone could have see it. how it could be man-made. I right. I don't... You'd have to do a lot of work to produce, to convince me it was man-made. Yeah. There was, there was something else I was, I was listening to recently. Uh, and again, I, I don't, I haven't researched this myself, but, um, someone was talking about how in the Jewish tradition, when you are eating at a table, you, you fold up the cloth, your, your napkin, and you leave it on the table. That means I'm coming back to my seat. When you're done with the meal, you just take the napkin and you throw it on the table. Like I'm done. I'm not coming back. Um, they, the, the people who were talking about this said, you know, why was the shroud when it came in that the, the writers of the gospel said they made a big deal about saying that the shroud was neatly folded up and placed on, on the tomb. They, again, the supposition there is I'll be back. I'm not done. Right. Certainly they, I don't know if that's just a fun thing to read into or whether it means something, but there, there is, kind of there is the, this, the burial cloth is mentioned in the gospel. They call it the, the Sindon. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, wrapped in a sindon, and there was a burial cloth mentioned. So um, it's consistent with what we read in the Gospels, and it doesn't seem capable of of having been made by human hands, having been forged. It's just too complicated. Right. People are very welcome to look into it on its own. Maybe if 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 there's a massive outcry, there will be. Um, one of the priests who has specialist training will be asked to give a more thorough treatment. But that's what I would say for now. It's, it's I'd say, a fifth witness to the, to the gospel, in addition to the gospels. Um, it's a confirmation of the resurrection, and it, it backs up the historical account that we have in the Gospels. So. Right. And like you said at the beginning, it, it it's not a proof because we don't know that, is this the image of our Lord Jesus Christ himself? Did it actually touch him? We can't prove that. But like you said at the beginning with the bullet holes, the bullet holes match up with the witness testimony, which matches up with the physical evidence. It all does seem to add up. So is it proof in and of itself? No. Does it all add up to the story? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I definitely think that it's the cloth that our Lord Jesus Christ was wrapped yeah. in and and that it was there at the resurrection. That's what I think. Yeah. But. Yeah. yeah. Well, Father, this has been great. Thank you for going through all of this with us. I know, uh, I know you had a lot going on. I know you had family in town, and so you took the time to do this for us. So very much appreciated. Well, good. Uh, Thank you very time. much. I um, hope it helped. And I just, I, I guess I need yes. to say again, um, a lot of this was shamelessly pilfered from other sources, so um, hopefully uh, they're not offended, and um, hopefully it can be taken in the spirit that it was meant as a as a compliment to the work that other people right. have done, and not wanting to uh, interpose myself and then reinvent the wheel there. So trying to be quoted at Chepi, right? Something like that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> Father, thanks for your time. Take care. Okay, God bless. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Apologetic Series on the SSPX podcast and on our YouTube page. Please consider subscribing to the YouTube account and the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever fine podcasts are found. And please consider leaving a rating or a review on this podcast. 
this will help to make sure more people can find this podcast and discover the beauty and the truth of traditional Catholicism. Until next time, thank you for joining us and God bless you.